0: a day in the life of Jesus with implications for us as his church. We are in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, and last week we heard the uh, sordid story of the death of John the Baptist. Surely uh, a woeful rejection of a prophet, such as the fate of prophets, and Jesus knew it was his fate as well. In the preceding part, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus got a notice of his own rejection by hearing his own townspeople confounded about how this ordinary homeboy, so it would seem, whose relatives they could name, had such supernatural powers. And so at the beginning of chapter 14, or in chapter 14, verse 13, where we begin today, Um, I just want to back up and say a little bit more, in addition to what I've already said, about the background and context of Matthew. And I think you'll find that on page four of your handout. There are a lot of things going on at once. In Matthew chapters 14 to 17, which is a new section of Matthew, we have noticed that one of the themes is continued opposition to Jesus. This is what characterized Matthew 11 and 12, before the parables. And now again, after chapter 13, one of the themes that occurs over and again is opposition to Jesus. Take, for example, last week, the death of John the Baptist, which was a prelude to Jesus's own death. Herod Antipas will soon take part in the death of Jesus, as he did in the death of John the Baptist. There's a second theme that comes as well, and it's a turn to include Gentiles and the church. You may have noticed in chapter 10, it was surprising to read that Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out only to the household of Israel. And so in Matthew's gospel, we're at a point where Jesus is turning his focus not to abandon Israel altogether. Israel is still going to be addressed in our passage today. But more and more, Jesus is looking towards his Gentile mission, which he as the Messiah was to fulfill. And today we're going to find connotations of a messianic banquet, an end-time banquet when Jesus on a mountain has all of the Gentiles from all of the world coming to him. And we'll see that even more closely next week when we look at chapter 15. In addition to those two themes, we also see that there are episodes reflecting here the history of Israel. And at this particular point in the Gospel of Matthew, we're taking up on the theme of what was called the divided monarchy, when Israel and Judah split apart after the time of Solomon. And something I didn't mention last week, which is worth noting as a reminder, is that Herod Antipas last week is an anti-prophet king. Many of the kings were against the prophets. And there were connotations, according to which Herod was King Ahab, and Herodias was Jezebel. And they were out to get Elijah, as you might remember. And here, too, Jesus, as we have seen before, picks up the mantle in the wake of John the Baptist. And it's important to know, if you want to read the Matthew intelligently with a view of the Old Testament, is to recognize that John is the new Elijah, and Jesus is the new Elisha, who comes in his wake. So in the beginning of our passage today, John is out of the picture. He's been taken up into heaven, as it were, much as Elijah was on the east side of the Jordan River in the book of Kings. And no sooner does Elijah disappear than Elisha comes and is on the move afresh. So Elisha took up the mantle by crossing over the water, and today we're going to see Jesus crossing over the water. Elisha, after he crossed over the water, was declared to be doubly endowed with the Spirit. And in verse 33 of chapter 14, which we're going to look at later on this afternoon, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by his disciples. Jesus will feed a multitude. This is exactly what Elisha did. And it's clear that Jesus is mimicking or uh, imitating the actions of Elisha. Why? Because Moses and Elijah and Elisha are special prophets who are carrying on the promise that was given in the book of Deuteronomy, that a king would arise after the manner of Moses, and he would be incredibly special. He would do things that were even more amazing than Moses. So all through Israel's history from that time on, they were looking for somebody who had the characteristics of Moses. Along comes Elijah. He kills the prophets of Baal, and then he goes in depression to Mount Sinai, where Moses was. Elijah, Elisha, imitate Moses, and so does Jesus, but even more so. Fourthly, as we've seen, and as we focused on last week, the passage is concerned with the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? According to the Nazarenes, he was a hometown boy, and they had no idea where he got his supernatural powers. According to Herod, he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And without knowing it, Herod takes part in the prefiguration of the death of the prophet Jesus, just as he took part in the actual death of John the Baptist. So that's part of the background to where we are in chapters 14 to 17, and I want to encourage you to continue to keep an eye on those themes as we go through um, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. But there's a specific background and context for Jesus here. In chapter 14, verse 13... It says, when Jesus heard, and here you might want to look at the, um, the translation that I've offered on page one of your outline. When Jesus heard, he withdrew from there. Well, what did Jesus hear? What he had heard about was he had heard about the death of John the Baptist. And so, just as Elisha uh, stepped in in the absence of Elijah, so now Jesus is on the move again, much as he was in chapter three uh, after the baptism. And after John was put in prison, Jesus begins his ministry. But Jesus is looking for a little time on his own here. It says in verse 13, when Jesus heard what happened to John, he withdrew from there in a boat for a remote place. I don't know what Thanksgiving weekend means to you, but for many people, it's, uh, of course, a day off. And it's a day away from work. And uh, many of you have probably been looking forward to... um, Monday off, it's a day with the family. It's a day when you don't have to go to work and maybe you are sort of cashing up mental energy for tomorrow as a day off. Well, Jesus had been cashing up mental energy for some time off. He wanted to process his fate as he was going to Jerusalem. He wanted probably to mourn the death of John the Baptist. And he perhaps wanted strategically to move himself, remove himself from the tetrarchy of Antipas. He was wanting to move out of the zone of this dangerous king-like figure who had become paranoid and who thought that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. So Jesus withdrew from there in a boat for a remote place. I remember... uh, For 14 years, I was the the Dean of the Residence in this college, and I did the job that Steve Hugo does. And there are always 70 people that you live with, and inevitably they need uh, to be led into their rooms, they have an issue with this or that, that needs janitorial help, some of them get sick, they have questions about their meals. And every once in a while, I felt like I was ready to go. So I would look forward to going to the cottage, and I would drive three hours to the cottage, and as soon as I got there, I would immediately kind of unwind, and I was always surprised to find I didn't really know I was that wound up until I feel myself unwinding, but all of a sudden, you know, you hear the loon, there's quiet, there are no sirens, um, there, are, um, there are little squirrels running around, nobody's knocking on your door and bothering you. Well, this is what Jesus was doing, presumably, in verse 13, when, he, when he's wanting to get away by himself. So when Jesus heard about John the Baptist, he withdrew to go somewhere alone. Verse fifteen or verse uh, uh, 14, when the crowds heard, they followed him on foot from the towns. So on, as soon as Jesus steps out of the car, as it were, at the cottage to get a little R&R, he emerges and he sees the same group of people that he just tried to get away from. He saw the great crowd. Well, if I drove three hours to the cottage to get away from 70 residents and they were all in the driveway saying, welcome to your cottage, nice to see you, where's the key to my room, where are we staying, what food are we going to eat, I would not be a happy camper. Jesus, on the other hand, and the important point here is the character of Jesus, because it's the driving force of what goes on in these three passages, and it's the driving force of what provides us hope as a church. He was compassionate towards them. And he healed their wretched. I remember when I was at a a Christian camp in the Muskokas uh, in my early 20s, um, the director of the camp was a high-profile person, and uh, a rascally uh, camper at dinner table had a jug full of ice water and snuck up behind the camp director and poured a jug of ice water full of ice down the back of his neck. The camp director just jumped up. And here's a test of character, right? If it had been me, I I would have screamed. But he just kind of shrugged, and he turned around, and he chuckled. And I thought, now this is the kind of guy you want as a camp director. This is a testimony to somebody's Christian character. Friends, this is the kind of a character and more that Jesus has. He was compassionate towards them and healed their wretched. Later on in another story of the feeding of the several thousand, Jesus wants them to have food. And the disciples say, just send them away. And Jesus says, yes, but they might faint on their way. So let us feed them. So here is a Christ who has inexhaustible resources when it comes to caring for people. Now, Jesus goes to his cottage place, his remote place, with the crowd. Uh, There's no indication of resentment, but we learn in verse 15 that the disciples say the place is remote. So presumably Jesus has gone on his retreat with, oh, about 10,000 people following him, wanting him to heal, heal him, and then getting hungry. The disciples seem to recognize that Jesus is seemingly out of control in this situation, and they've had enough. So they turn to Jesus and are quite directive. They say the dinner hour has already come. Dismiss the crowds so that they can go away or come away to the villages and buy some food. Jesus, get practical. If people are hungry, it's getting late. But Jesus has a different attitude. And here's where we get a lesson for the church and realize how we are empowered as part of the church. He said to them, They have no need to come away. You give them food to eat. Well, this is even less practical than before. Lord, we got the equivalent of about a bag full of lunch here. Five loaves, two fish. Look around. But Jesus isn't kidding. So they say to him, we have no thing. Jesus said, they have no need. The disciples respond, we have no thing here. But five loaves and two fish. Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he, who is in charge after all, the disciples uh, probably were a little bit rebuked at this point. Jesus knows how to run the show. Thank you very much. He directs the crowd to recline upon the grass. This is a command that a master would give to his disciples, that a, a general would give to his army. He invites them to sit on the grass. And then taking five loaves and two fish, he looks up into heaven. He gives thanks. That's the first main verb in the sentence. And after breaking... The bread, he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples to the crowds. And they ate and were all filled, and they took up the excess of that which was broken, twelve full baskets. And those eating were as if five thousand men, not including the women and the children. Well, at the most basic level, Jesus is meeting the needs, the physical needs, of his people. These are Israelites, and that's underscored by the fact that there are 12 baskets that are taken up at the end. There's some debate about what the 12 baskets signify. They might simply just be 12. That was the number. But they could also be the real number, as well as have significance. And so here Jesus is showing his care and his concern for Israel. And that includes their basic human needs. And the followers of Jesus are invited to bring what little resources they have, bring them to Jesus, and allow Jesus to accomplish his mission through the limited resources that they have. Well, I'm sure you've heard sermons on this passage before, and those sermons that talk about Jesus making much of our provisions, meager as they might seem, is really an apropos point. Five loaves and two fish. That's like a one package of weenies for 5,000 people. Um, maybe it wasn't even worth mentioning. But Jesus is able to take the resources that his people offer him in faith and to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. So, my friends, following Jesus as part of his covenant people or his church in times of isolation and hunger... Is to have one's own needs met, but that's also in order to meet the needs of others. Did you notice the sequence? Jesus gave them the the fish, and then they uh, gave to the uh, to the crowds. He gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples to the crowds. I think this reminds us of the covenant of Abraham. You remember Abraham was blessed by God and God promised to bless him abundantly more than just about anybody else. But of course, not for his own sake, but that he might be a means by which all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so here Jesus, in a way, is prefiguring and fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, which was filled in him. Jesus, as a descendant of Abraham, became a means by which the whole earth found blessing. And my friends, here's a good reminder that there's no distinction between spiritual blessings. Jesus doesn't just save your soul, but he wants also to fill your stomach. And he wants the church to pronounce message of salvation, but he wants the church also to feed the people who are hungry. I was struck in reading this week a sentence that I couldn't get out of my mind, and it talked about the distribution of wealth. And it went something like this. If someone is hungry and can't buy food and you don't provide them with the money they need in order not to die, how is it that you haven't killed them? There's a strong conviction here. There's a strong element of teaching that the church at its best has taken up. I can't think of a better denomination than the Salvation Army in this regard that takes seriously the physical needs of God's people. As we go through the passage, I just want you to uh, take note of the character traits of Jesus, because as I'm preaching through this section, I don't want to turn this into sort of become like John, the, become like uh, Simon Peter, become like the disciples, because the driving force in all of this is the nature and the character of Jesus. So who is Jesus so far? Jesus so far is one who shows compassion, and he's one who has more resources to help provide for the needs of his people than you and I can imagine. What is our task? Our task is to show him what we've got, to line up behind him, and to ask him to do his will to the end that we and God's people might have their needs met. Secondly, Jesus' day isn't over. Something happened here that is worth mentioning in between these two paragraphs. You'll notice that in the second paragraph, which is uh, in the second story, which is a two-act story, uh, act one concerns Christ infallibly at prayer and doing the supernatural, and then act two is the church, reflected in the person of Simon Peter, fallibly at prayer and attempting the supernatural. But notice how the passage begins. It says, and immediately he, that is Jesus, strongly compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go before him to the far side during which time he would say goodbye to the crowds. The word here, commanded, is a strong one, and it's translated aptly, I think, strongly compelled. Why did Jesus strongly compel them to do this? Well, it's likely that um, Matthew is aware of the historical situation that happened in John's account. And in John chapter 6, after this episode happened, and I've got it quoted on the bottom of page 9, when the people saw... That he, um, the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This was no ordinary feeding. These were Jews. And they were in tune to look for the Messiah, and they had reason to think that Jesus was the Messiah. And one of the things on their Messiah bucket list was, will this guy provide us with bread in the wilderness? If he provides us with bread in the wilderness, he's the Messiah, and he's the king who has come. So although Matthew doesn't tell us, it's quite likely, I think, that this created quite a stir and that Jesus had to do crowd control. The last thing he wanted was his disciples to get on board and to kind of participate in this political um, revolution. So Jesus um, uh, does crowd control. He sends his disciples into a boat to go away. He says goodbye to the people. And then so upon dismissing the crowds, he ascended into the mountains again to try to be by himself. To pray, which he tried to do the first time. And here comes attempt number two. This time it's more successful. And we find in verse 23 at the end, at late evening, when late evening came, he was there alone. Great. Jesus ascends the mountain, as did Moses and Elijah. And as will the Messiah on the day when the Gentiles are coming to Zion. The mountain in Matthew is, a, is a, a motif of Zion, wherein Jesus occupies it. And so Jesus is there on the mountain praying. But then there's trouble with the guys that he just sent out. A huge storm has come, and they've been rowing for up to nine hours. They had been trying to sail as well as row, given the boat that they had. And they were several stadia from the land. They were out in the middle of the lake. And it was dark by this time. Because at the fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So finally, Jesus, after getting his time of prayer, he decides that he's going to go and help out the disciples who are losing against the waves. You notice that the word for uh, the waves is that they were tortured And here we can see a little bit of a note that helps us understand what's going on in this passage. Jesus is not simply exercising control over nature. He's exercising control over evil and chaos. You see, the Israelite and Canaanite background to the waves was that the waves and water symbolized chaos, uh, demonic chaos. Um cosmic chaos. There in fact was a Canaanite God whose name was sea. And um, so when Jesus walks upon the sea, he's declaring his sovereignty over that which is evil. So it's not just sort of a trick, you know, he can calm the storm. But as we read this passage, I think we're invited to think of ourselves, not simply in a in a natural chaos, this isn't kind of something that you should remember when you're sort of uh, whitewater rafting and are coming upon the falls, although you could, but it can be something that you remember when you're being assaulted by evil, when your world is coming unglued, when you feel as though evil is oppressing you. Jesus walks on the water. When you wanted to portray God as sovereign over the world, you portrayed him on a throne. And the throne, as you can tell from pictures uh, that are drawn in stones and in clay in the ancient Near East, beneath that God's throne are the waters. And he's sitting on a calm platform on those rough waters. And it's a way of saying, this guy is in control of the cosmos. This guy is in control of everything that is evil. Here we see, I think, if we're looking back on an Old Testament passage, whereas the Abrahamic covenant reminded us of the first situation, I think one of the best reminders of this situation is at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1. You remember it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was an amorphous hodgepodge. And then, there's a two, and then what comes is two parallel lines. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, ominous, evil, chaotic. But the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. You have chaos on the one hand. But then you have the Spirit of God poised like a bird hovering above the waters, ready to bring order. And what comes next? Let there be light. And there was light. The disciples are understandably afraid. I mean, it's the middle of the night. They're in the sea, which were terrified, the Israelites. Uh, The Phoenicians were quite happy at sea, but the Israelites weren't near the coast very often, and water was bad news for them. They weren't particularly good fishermen. So here it was dark. The wind was pounding. And what do they see is this thing which is a ghost. And they screamed in terror. At that moment, and here's where we again see the character of Jesus Jesus says, Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. It's often translated that middle word, it is I, but it is take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's declaring that he is the God who was revealed as I am in the Old Testament. And that was revealed in the context of of God delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians and from slavery by taking them across the Reed Sea. The waters were parted and the people under Moses' leadership went across on dry ground because God is sovereign over the waters. Turn for a minute with me, if you will, to page 9. And let me uh, interject a little psalm reading at this point, if I may. Psalm 107, verses 25 to 32. This is like what happened on the water um, to the disciples. And it evokes the Old Testament background. It's Psalm 107, 25 to 32. I will read up to the slash, and I ask you to read after the slash. Page nine, section B. You ready? Page nine. By his word, he raised a storm wind, made the waves surge, mounting up to the heaven, plunging down to the depths, disgorging in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man, all their skill to no avail. In their adversity, they cried to the Lord and he saved them from their troubles. He reduced the storm to a whisper. The waves were stilled. They rejoiced when all was quiet, and he brought them to the port they desired. Let them praise the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the congregation of the people. Acclaim him in the assembly of the elders. My friends, there's a reminder here for the church and for us as individuals that no matter what evil is assaulting you, and no matter how much you are afraid, there's somebody who's in control, and that is Jesus, the great I am. And he says what you could well write on your desk or um, uh, somewhere else significant, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. Well, the character of God in this situation, of course, is one of sovereign. He's in control. Um, He doesn't just calm the winds. He walks on the waters. He's he's the, the majestic sovereign over everything that's chaotic. He has secured her salvation. And now comes the example of the church embodied in Peter. Now, there's some debate about whether Peter was doing the right thing or not, and there's a little note about that in your notes. I won't bother uh, going into it now, but I think it's fair to say that Jesus condem- or commends Peter. Now, think about it. You're in, the, you're, in the, you're in a boat. It's the middle of the night. You're tired. You've been rowing for hours. Uh, you're in danger of tipping over. You're exhausted. You see this ghost, and then it comes back. Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. It's me. Well, I think I would just sort of wipe my brow and fall over half dead. But then Peter says, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the waters. And Jesus says, come. So getting down from the boat, Peter walked on the waters and came to Jesus. That's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, what a gutsy guy um, to have the composure and the confidence to want to just kind of do the unimaginable. So I've summarized this in our in our notes as follows. Following Jesus as part of his covenant people, the church, in times of cosmic turmoil, is having one's fears calmed, one's abilities enhanced, and one's imagination inspired. Peter's imagination was inspired and his abilities were enhanced. And then one's sinking lifted. Peter got out there, things were going pretty well, and then he began to think, what am I doing? It's a little bit maybe like riding a bicycle. You can get on there and do it, but if you start to think about all of the things that you're doing and how you shouldn't be able to hold yourself up, you could easily fall. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. And here's a good instruction about what the church does. Save me, Lord. Immediately, Jesus stretches out his hand, grabs a hold of him, and says, Tiny Faith, a little double-minded, aren't you? And then they ascend into the boat together, and because Matthew has already recorded one instance of the calming of the sea, he just as a throwaway line says, And the wind stopped. Stopping the wind is old hat. Of course Jesus can do that. But now he walks on the water. He's someone's, someone, someone else to come and walk on the water with him. And so when they get into the boat, the wind stops. And those in the boat worship him, saying, You really are the Son of God. My friends, this is no magician. This is God incarnate. This is the great I am who has become a carpenter and has had fellowship with the 12 disciples, including us. And our response, knowing the kind of character and the kind of person that he is, should be, you really are the son of God. And then there's a third thing that happens at the end of a very long day. And that is, Jesus extends care on a broad scale. Verses 34 and 36 are on page 2. And this is a summary passage. Matthew likes to summarize things, so we shouldn't read too much theology into this. He's he's compressing a lot. But there's a different tone here that's important. So having crossed over, uh, think of Moses. Think of uh, Elisha crossing the Jordan. Think of Jesus as the Mosaic prophet. They came to the land of Gennesaret. Now, it's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee and is a very fertile area. It wasn't known particularly as a place where Jesus did a lot of ministering, but the people recognized him, and the men of that place sent word to the whole surrounding district, and they brought to him all who were sick, and they were continually pleading with him that they might touch just the finger of his cloak, and as many as reached out were completely delivered." We're told, of course, that all kinds of things Jesus did that we don't really hear anything about. But here's a window on a different kind of a picture of Jesus. This is Jesus going public. He's not just doing his thing amongst his own disciples, but here he casts the net wide, and he just wanders around, and he lets people from all over the area come and touch him. And however theologically problematic it might seem, this is what it says. As many as reached out were completely delivered. Jesus is not a man for the church. He's a man for the world. And he cares about everyone. And so I think a third lesson that we can draw from this is that believing curiosity about Jesus, even on the part of a needful mob, now I acknowledge that they were probably still part of the covenant people and Israelites, but even that curiosity that led them to do something as superstitious as reach for the fringe of his garment, Broad wholeness in unexpected ways. My friends, we can never put Jesus in a box. We can study theology and do as careful a job as we can, but Jesus does what Jesus wants. And in this case, I think it's helpful to remember. We Protestants, evangelicals in the Reformed tradition, love to say, what saves? Faith. But there's a comeback to that. Faith doesn't save at all. What? Faith saves. That's heretical not to say. No, faith doesn't save. Jesus does. That's what he did. Jesus is good news to the people of God, but he's good news for everybody. So, church, as we learn about church in these passages, let us remember that we have a marvelous Lord who is compassionate, who is able to make much out of our little, who controls the cosmos and can calm our turmoil and quell evil. He invites us to take chances and rescues us when we slumber. He is a marvelous God. Let us give him thanks and praise him. Amen.